I'm Graham Smith. I'm the chair of the Society of Obstetrician and Gynecologists of Canada's Academic Council, as well as the head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Queen's University. We're doing this podcast to facilitate discussions on a variety of topics pertaining to the fields of obstetrics and gynecology in Canada and globally. This podcast is for you if you're a medical professional or if you have an interest in topics relating to women's health in general. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is an obstetrician and gynecologist and menopause specialist at Women's College Hospital and Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto and has a master's in health science in knowledge translation. She has a special interest in women who are prematurely menopausal due to cancer therapies and women with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndromes. She directs the Familial Ovarian Cancer Program at Women's College Hospital. Today, we'll be talking about menopause and breast cancer, and she is one of the authors of the clinical practice guideline that will be published in the December edition of the JOGC. Michelle, welcome to the SOGC's Women's Health Podcast, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much, Graham, for having me today. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. So one in eight Canadian women will develop breast cancer during their lifetime. Previously, many women were prescribed hormone therapy during menopause, but because of initial analysis of studies like the Women's Health Initiative, many of those women went off their HRT or were never offered it to start. I recognize that the association between menopausal hormone therapy and the development of breast cancer is complex, and new studies have emerged in the last few years. What have we learned? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, menopausal hormone therapy gets a bit of a bad reputation in Canada and globally based on the results of large randomized control studies like the Women's Health Initiative study. But for people who went back and did a subgroup analysis or looked at the absolute numbers that came out of the WHI, what we found is that the absolute increased risk of breast cancer from the hormone therapy that was used during the WHI, which included conjugated estrogens with medroxyprogesterone acetate continuously, was not a huge increase in numbers. So the total increase was about 8 out of 10,000 women years of breast cancer. And that was not something that was necessarily followed over 20 years and found to still be increased. So in the short term and in the long term, women who were taking conjugated estrogens alone because they had had a hysterectomy had lower breast cancer rates even than women who took placebo. So just to reiterate, women who took estrogen therapy actually had less breast cancer than women who took nothing at all. And this may or may not be specific to the type of compounds that are in conjugated estrogen therapy. But in 2020, we had an updated publication for 20 years of follow-up from the WHI study, and those numbers were maintained. So women who took estrogen alone actually had less breast cancer than women who took placebo. There seems to be something in randomized control trial data based on using conjugated estrogen therapy orally that protects the breast from going on to develop breast cancer. Those numbers were not repeated in the women who were on continuous combined hormone replacement therapy with conjugated estrogens and medroxyprogesterone acetate. And we did see an ongoing increased rate of breast cancer of a similar um, magnitude in the women who were taking combined hormone therapy, but overall no increased breast cancer deaths from those women compared to placebo. Um, and that was maintained over 20 years. 
that's just WHI data. But since then, there have been a lot of other studies that have really added to our understanding of breast cancer and menopausal hormone therapy. And to be clear, we're talking specifically about the risk of developing breast cancer from starting hormone therapy, not the risk of having a recurrence in breast cancer for women who have already had breast cancer and take hormone replacement therapy. Notably, there was a study published in 2014 called the E3N study, which was a large prospective study out of Europe that looked at women who were taking continuous estradiol therapy with a variety of different progesterone and progestogens. So it included progesterone, which we uh, have in Canada available as micronized progesterone, didrogesterone, which we do not have available in Canada, but is similar to progesterone in chemical composition, and a variety of synthetic progestins, of which we have several in Canada, norethindrone, norethistrone, medroxyprogesterone, so on and so forth. In that study, they found that women in the short term who were taking estradiol with progesterone and didrogesterone did not have a significantly increased risk of breast cancer. And in fact, any attributable increased risk of breast cancer was um, went away after the women discontinued their hormone therapy. In contrast, women who were taking synthetic progestins, and this sort of echoes what we saw in the WHI, did have a very small increased risk of breast cancer. The hazard ratio was about 1.3, and those numbers continued on even after discontinuation of uh, hormone therapy. In terms of other sort of new additions to the hormone therapy um, market in Canada, we've been really lucky over the last few years to get some new players, um, which have really expanded our armamentarium of what we're allowed to offer. Uh, namely, we have the availability of the TSEC, which is a combination of basidoxyphene and uh, conjugated estrogens. And basidoxyphene is a really interesting compound because it is not available on its own in Canada, but it is in Europe as an osteoporosis drug. And what it is is a serum, so it's a selective estrogen receptor modulator that is profoundly antagonistic to the endometrium and neutral, if not protective, to the breast estrogen receptors. So in combination with the conjugated estrogen, it acts as a combination hormone therapy that does not necessitate the use of an additional progestogen. And this may be a compound that allows us to sort of offer something that the two compounds in it independently do not stimulate breast tissue proliferation um, and ductal elongation. Similarly, we've recently had the STEER come to the market under the name of Tibolone, and this is a medication that's been available in Europe for a long time and has recently come to the market here in Canada that also has fairly breast-neutral data um, compared to the sort of older traditional com combination hormone therapy. So lots of new and exciting things. So there have been some new uh, studies as well that uh, show us that the news isn't all reassuring. Um, what we found is that there were some large registry data published in large journals like the BMJ and the Lancet over the last few years that looked at ever users versus never users of hormone therapy and the overall rates of breast cancer that developed. What they found is that women who were taking estradiol alone had an increased rate of breast cancer sort of overall attributed after five years of about one in 200. And for combination hormone therapy, usually with synthetic progestins, the rate was about one in 50. Um, similarly, the uh, BMJ article showed increased rates overall after five years of use uh, of breast cancer development. That being said, again, not significant increases in breast cancer deaths. And when compared to the sort of better randomized control trial data that we have from the WHI review, um, I think we have to sort of 
use our analytical and critical analysis hats when we're reading these studies to get a sense of, you know, overall, what do we really think the attributable breast cancer risk is from these hormone therapies? And how do we individualize this therapy to really optimize the individual patient in front of us's risk for breast cancer? So the new guideline, menopause and breast cancer coming out later this year, there are four main practice changes from the last guideline, which I believe was released in 2014. Perhaps we can go through each of these and you can explain what led to these changes. The first one was in prescribing menopausal hormone therapy, breast cancer risk can be ameliorated by choosing cyclic combined therapy with progesterone and long cycle regimens, and by taking into account new pharmacologic options such as tissue selective estrogen compounds and steroid precursor molecules. So that sort of alludes back to what we were just discussing in terms of what's newly available to us within the hormone therapy landscape in Canada. You know, taken from these studies that have been published in the last six years, what we can understand is that there are ways we can optimize the effects of hormones on the breast tissue. So number one, you know, it is normal in a normal menstrual cycle to only be making progesterone for about half of the menstrual cycle after ovulation and until uh, the menstrual period starts. So it's quite abnormal for the physiological tissue to be seeing progestogen therapy every single day. We offer it this way to minimize abnormal bleeding or to minimize predictable bleeding, but physiologically speaking, our breast is used to seeing sort of fluctuating levels of estrogens and then only progesterone therapy for about two weeks of the month, 12 days even of the month. And for that reason, we think that there may be some value in offering cyclic therapy. And in fact, when we look back on these studies that were published, like the E3N trial, the study that I spoke about, those women who didn't have an increased risk in breast cancer were offered cyclic progesterone therapy, so for 12 days of the month, and they weren't taking their progesterone therapy every single day. That's in contrast to the WHI study, where women were offered progestogen therapy every day or with short breaks. And we don't think that that tends to give the breast tissue as much of uh, an opportunity to sort of reduce that mitosis and go back to its less proliferative phase before it gets stimulated again um, after being primed by estrogen by the progesterone therapy. So there seems to be some value in giving uh, progesterone therapy cyclically, although it's not a one-size-fits-all prescription. We don't say everybody must take cyclic therapy, but when we're talking about combination hormone replacement therapy and minimizing breast cancer risk, we can extrapolate from these studies that were done that there is some value in having a progesterone-free interval. That's what a long cycle hormone therapy regimen would also give you. And we can also take advantage of the opportunity to use non-progestogen containing compounds like the TSEC um, on a continuous basis, because then we don't have to deal with the progestogen exposure at all. So you talk about long cycle regimens. Can you give me an example of what a long cycle regimen might look like? Sure. So if you go back and you look at all the literature on hormone replacement therapy over the years, there's some description of women who are taking continuous estrogen therapy on a daily basis and who only take a progestogen for exposure once every two or once every three months for about 10 days at a time. It becomes really important to choose a progestogen that is very 
antagonistic to the endometrium to cause that decidualization and that change in the endometrium so that you don't expose the women to risk of hyperplasia. But it doesn't say that it has to be offered on a monthly basis or on a daily basis. You could extend that regimen and offer it once every two months or once every three months, as long as you're using something that's quite strong um, and antagonistic to the endometrium, like medroxyprogesterone acetate. That has a little bit of a better profile when it comes to inducing those changes than something like micronized progesterone. Now you talk about natural progesterone and synthetic progestins. Can you tell me what the difference is in terms of the risk that we think? So that's a really, really great question. And I don't think that we have very clear numbers on what the risk difference is. What we can extrapolate from all the studies that we've discussed here today is that in general, women who are exposed to micronized progesterone compared to synthetic progestogens seem to have less of a breast cancer risk. And that is taking into account the type of estrogen that's given, the regimen, the, the frequency, the cyclic versus continuous. So there's lots of different ways that the hormone therapy regimen can be tweaked to minimize the breast exposure to the progestogen. But when it comes to the differences between micronized progesterone, which is chemically similar to what the ovary would make after ovulation, and synthetic progestins, there seems to be a safer profile for breast tissue with the micronized progesterone as compared to the synthetic progestogens. Okay, going back to the uh, practice changes, in women who have had a hysterectomy, conjugated estrogen-only hormone therapy carries a statistically significant lower breast cancer risk than placebo. This can be considered first-line treatment for vasomotor symptoms in women at risk for breast cancer who have had a hysterectomy. Is this from new studies or is it reanalysis of older data? So I think when it comes to, you know, choosing a first line treatment, you have to really look at the patient and her overall clinical picture. There may be a better option by using a transdermal estradiol in a patient who may be at risk for breast cancer because of a clot risk, because of a cardiovascular risk profile, because she has migraines. So I certainly wouldn't say that we should always use oral conjugated estrogen therapy as first line. What we can say is that 20-year follow-up of the WHIRCT data looking at 27,000 women showed us that for those women, there was a lower risk of breast cancer than women who took placebo. And that was going back to them taking it at the time of the WHI, but the 20-year follow-up data was without taking the hormone therapy. It just followed them um, prospectively to see what happened to their breast cancer risk. We don't have that data for estradiol because the studies weren't done with estradiol. So I don't think we can say that the conjugated estrogens are definitively better for the breast than the, than the estradiol therapies that we have. But what we can say is that we do have RCT data that shows us a safety profile from a breast cancer point of view, specifically with conjugated estrogen. For vaginal dryness, vaginal estrogen can be offered, presumably in the form of a ring or topical. After trying things like moisturizers and lubricants for women with a history of breast cancer, and new therapeutic options such as vaginal prasterone, which is dehydroepiandrosterone, and oral ospemaphine may be approved for use in women with a history of breast cancer. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So, I mean, the genitourinary syndrome of menopause is really, really important, and it's a really big issue that tends to worsen as women get older and further away from their natural menopause. There's always been a little bit of controversy about the safety of using vaginal estrogen in women who have had breast cancer treatment. 
our guideline discusses what current studies you know we have available to us and alludes to the fact that there is randomized control trial data currently being collected on the use of vaginal estrogens after a breast cancer diagnosis but overall if you look at the sort of guidelines that are out there for breast cancer treatment in general i think what we can conclude is that for women who are taking tamoxifen therapy or who have had a triple negative breast cancer or don't have an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, it seems to be quite safe for them to use vaginal estrogen therapies. And as you said, that could be in the use of a cream, a ring, or a vaginal tablet. If women are taking an aromatase inhibitor, the overall goal for their therapy is to completely limit the amount of estrogen that their bodies see. So we know that by giving vaginal estrogen, the amount of serum estradiol change is very minimal. It doesn't take it outside of the menopausal range, but there's always going to be a little bit of controversy about using vaginal estrogen in women on aromatase inhibitors. And the recommendation is typically to use vaginal moisturizers first before using vaginal estrogen in that population. That being said, there are many breast oncologists who are supportive of using vaginal estrogen in this population as needed, because one of the most significant side effects of using an aromatase inhibitor is vaginal dryness. We are really excited about the new products that have been Health Canada approved or awaiting Health Canada approval and are hopefully going to be coming to the market soon. The vaginal prosterone has been available in the States and will have Health Canada approval for women who have had breast cancer. This is a vaginal prosterone or DHEA, as you said, that will be used on a daily basis intravaginally um, with a primary indication to help with dyspareunia. And ospamaphine is going to be an oral CIRM, so an oral selective estrogen receptor modulator that can be taken, that has minimal effects on the other estrogen receptors in the body, but is very agonistic to the vaginal epithelium. Is there enough absorption of vaginal estrogen that it might impact on a woman's vasomotor symptoms? So it really shouldn't be. We know that in the highest doses of vaginal estrogen that can be absorbed, which is typically with a higher dose cream or with the older um, preparations of vaginal estrogen tablets that we used to have, there was a slight systemic absorption where the serum estradiol levels could be changed slightly, but never outside of the menopausal range. And therefore, there really shouldn't be an impact on systemic um symptoms like vasomotor symptoms. Similarly, we don't need to use any endometrial protective agent when we use vaginal estrogens in the doses that are approved for the same reasons. There shouldn't be enough absorbed that it makes any significant impact on the vagin on the uh, endometrium. So menopausal hormone therapy can be offered to women with a hereditary predisposition to breast cancer in the absence of contraindications to mitigate the risk of premature menopause. What would you say are the contraindications? So the contraindications for hormone therapy in general include a personal history of breast cancer, but that is very different than carrying a hereditary disposition for an increased risk of breast cancer. So I don't have to belabor the sort of overall contraindications to using systemic hormone therapy, but breast cancer is definitely one of them, whether that's an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer or even a triple negative breast cancer. Women who have had breast cancer in general are not offered systemic hormone replacement therapy, but there are definitely individual circumstances where the benefit of using hormone therapy in these patients may outweigh the risk, depending on their clinical picture. We don't usually make any blanket statements, but we do consider a personal history of breast cancer to be a contraindication to systemic hormone replacement therapy. 
Now, the population of women who carry a BRCA1 or 2 genetic mutation, and this is a population I look after frequently in my clinic at Women's College Hospital, are unique because they are often prematurely menopausal, either because they've had uh, breast cancer treatment that has um, sort of quelled their ovarian function, or they've undergone a risk-reducing salpinga oophorectomy for protection from ovarian and fallopian tube cancer. In women who carry a genetic predisposition to ovarian and breast cancer and who have undergone a risk-reducing salpinga oophorectomy who do not have a personal history of breast cancer, there is very clear safety data that it is a good idea to offer these women hormone therapy until the average age of menopause for mitigation of all of the risks systemically and quality of life that are conferred with a a premature ovarian insufficiency or a surgical menopause. Okay, just to go backwards a minute. So if we shouldn't prescribe menopausal hormone therapy for those women with a personal history of breast cancer, what would your recommendation for managing vasomotor symptoms or vaginal dryness be? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, we're lucky enough, again, that we've got a wide armamentarium of options to offer women who have contraindications to hormone therapy. In the breast cancer population, we know that um, medications like venlafaxine or desvenlafaxine have been shown to be superior to other options like the gabapentinoids um, or the the sort of weak uh, blood pressure medications like clonidine that have been traditionally prescribed. So usually something like venlafaxine or desvenlafaxine is a first line. Um, In the States, a long-acting salt of paroxetine at 7.5 milligrams has been approved uh, as an alternative to low-dose estrogen for the treatment of hot flashes and night sweats by the FDA. We don't have access to that same approval or to that same long-acting salt, but we are able to give paroxetine at a low dose of 10 milligrams to sort of mimic what that 7.5 milligram long-acting salt does in America. Um, Where you really need to use caution is that tamoxifen and paroxetine are both metabolized by the same liver enzymes, so you may not want to use the paroxetine in the context of using tamoxifen for breast cancer treatment. A new old player is oxybutynin. So we've had oxybutynin available to us for many years, uh, but it's recently been restudied both in the breast cancer and non-breast cancer population as a treatment option for vasomotor symptoms and has been shown shown to be quite effective as well. The starting dose is usually 2.5 milligrams twice daily and can be increased up to 5 milligrams twice daily. And both anecdotally and in the the published evidence, we see a significant improvement in severity and frequency of vasomotor symptoms. That's sort of it for the systemic options. But we also, as we talked about, have lots of options for vaginal treatments. We usually start with moisturizers, and that could be something like glycerin suppositories or hyaluronic acid suppositories or gels that are available over the counter. And then in the right setting, offering vaginal estrogen can be very helpful and appropriate. And hopefully down the line, also vaginal prasterone or oral um, serms for the treatment of vaginal atrophy. Any final thoughts or take-home messages uh, that healthcare providers should consider when discussing the menopause and breast cancer with their patients? I think the key message is really to individualize care for every patient that's sitting in front of you. And that's not specific to breast cancer risk, but we have so much available to us now when it comes to treating um, menopausal symptoms and improving both quality of life and long-term morbidity um, as it pertains to lack of estrogen, that we really owe it to our patients to know what's available and to know what regimen, what treatment, what options are best going to mitigate their symptoms and give them the best possible quality of life and long-term 
good health promotion and good health outcomes. And if you don't know what they are, know how to access them. So know where to look. Look at your resources and your toolbox. Look at Menopause and You uh, through the SOGC. Look at these guidelines. We're producing some infographics that are going to be really helpful as well um, when it comes to just summarizing what the guidelines say, because these are updated. They take into account all of these new options and suggestions that are available. And you can also be a little bit of a menopause expert, even just in the comfort of your own office, if you spend a little bit of time reading um, um, these guidelines are accessing the Canadian Menopause Society and their pocketbook for all the different options that are available. Or you can always use telemedicine and phone a friend. I know most of the menopause experts across Canada, and we are all super passionate and more than happy to give our feedback uh, if you want to run something by us. So don't hesitate to reach out to your friendly menopause specialist. Thank you so much, Michelle. I want to thank our guest and those involved in producing this podcast. If you have any suggestions for topics or people we should speak with, please contact the SOGC at info at SOGC.com. Until the next time, I'm Graham Smith. Be safe.